Today's reading can be found in the book of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. That's Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. It is a very striking thing, isn't it, to be arriving at the peak of this COVID pandemic at the very point that we celebrate the Christian festival of Easter. Uh, to, to be facing, as it were, a, a world that's dominated by suffering and sickness and death, just as the church proclaims the victory that Christ has over death. But of course the two aren't quite so easy to put together uh, and the hope that the Christian faith holds out uh, doesn't uh, land so quickly, so easily. It certainly didn't in the passage that we read earlier. Two very striking reactions to, to the events are displayed here. The first of those is despair, a despair in the, the, the women making their way to the tomb, tragically preparing a final act of devotion to their fallen Lord. And despair is all around today, the, the terrible predictions of, of apocalyptic numbers of deaths, the despair in hospitals as they prepare uh, for the wave of patients that they're anticipating, the, the despair at the thought of the economic downturn uh, that we're going to be facing. Despair that there's no end in sight. Uh, and alongside despair, we also find that there is scepticism. Those who are cynical, questioning uh, whether the science is right, questioning whether the government's strategy is correct, casting doubt on the science, pouring scorn on the adequacy of the response. And scepticism is also here in our passage, in the reaction of the disciples who will not believe what they're told. So look with me at these two uh, uh, reactions to the events of this first Easter Sunday. Uh, begin with despair and see how despair gives way to hope. It's kind of both admirable and tragic at the same time, isn't it? The women's journey to the tomb. And it's also so poorly thought through. Uh, they, they go there to anoint the body, but nobody seems to have asked how they're going to get into the tomb. Who's going to move the stone away for them? Heart has ruled overhead. All they know is that they need to be there. 
And the moment that the Sabbath is over, that the moment that dawn breaks, they're on their way. And as they approach, up ahead in the distance, in the grey light of dawn, they see, they, they think they see, that the stone has indeed been moved away, that, that the tomb is open. I wonder if they ran at that point, or I wonder if they were afraid. But eventually they approach, they enter, and discover that the tomb is empty. No corpse to embalm. And while they're wondering about that, two figures appear alongside them with clothes that are gleaming like lightning. And it is a terrifying encounter. They fall to the floor, faces buried in the dirt, fearful to look up. And at that point, the angels, for that's what we discover later they are, the angels speak. And it's such a good first question, isn't it? I've heard it described as a counselling question. About, by which I, I think is meant that it wasn't a question that was intended to elicit information. No, it was the kind of question that was intended to prompt self-awareness. The question is, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And you can almost imagine the cogs beginning to whir in the women's heads. The living? Why look for the living? But we're not looking for the living, are we? What are these spices in our hands? Surely we're looking for somebody who's dead. And at that point the angels landed. He is not here. He has risen. There's a really key um, kind of implication uh, of what we see happening at this point. And that is that Nobody was expecting this. It's not as though the moment that they entered into the empty tomb and they took a look around and they said, yes, it's the resurrection. I knew it. No, there's none of that takes place because the women weren't expecting it on their journey to the tomb and the disciples left behind, locked in a room for fear and terror, they weren't expecting it either. We mustn't imagine that at this point, in the story of the early church, the disciples are like a, like a runner, poised on the starting blocks, uh, coiled and ready to go. And it just took the tiniest nudge for them to fly off down the track and, and launch the Christian church. It wasn't like that at all. They weren't ready for any of this. And that means that something must have happened to change their expectation. Something must have taken place to bring about a revolution in their thinking. Sociologists tell us that of all the characteristics of, um, of a society, it's, it's the religious elements that are the most resistant to change. You can see all sorts of social change taking place, but religious practices, uh, they can lag behind uh, for decades, centuries, uh, because they're so deeply rooted in cultural experience. But here we are in the first century in Palestine, where historians tell us that, that almost overnight, dramatic changes in a huge section of the Jewish population took place. Suddenly a group of people who had abandoned their previous religious commitments and were worshipping a man. They even shifted the, the day of their holy day from the Jewish Sabbath to the Day of Resurrection, the Sunday. 
Something had to have happened to have caused that to take place. Something had to have happened to launch this religious movement that swept across the known world. Something had to have happened to turn those grieving women into joyful disciples and fearless men, into fearful men, into fearless preachers. And the something that happened was the empty tomb. I'm sure you realise that uh, that talk for the children earlier on wasn't just for the children. All of us need to, to, to look carefully at the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because it's hard and it's strong, powerful enough, surely, to persuade even the most hardened sceptic. Or is it? Having seen uh, the way in which hope breaks in uh, to this atmosphere of despair, uh, now see how, in the face of scepticism, uh, we find a breaking in of wonder. It is a striking transformation, isn't it? Uh, the women who had trudged to the tomb uh, so miserably, so despondent, uh, are now hurrying back, I guess, returning very different people. For now they are witnesses, now they have a story to tell, now they've got something to say. In fact, they are the very first witnesses of this resurrection event. Now that's why Luke, good historian that he is, wants us to know their names and lists them in verse 10. And then a great moment. No sooner have they declared to the eleven and all the other disciples with them uh, what they've seen and heard than the eleven break forth, uh, ready to launch the church. No, not at all. That's not what happens. As we've seen, they weren't expecting it and they weren't prepared. And instead, the women are met with sceptical disbelief. Verse 11. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. The, the, the language actually suggests sort of crazy talk, gibberish. The kind of ramblings or ravings of somebody in delirium. You can picture the scene, can't you? Maybe somebody's out the back getting a meal ready um, and then the women arrive and, and he can hear from the other room uh, talk about uh, tomb and angel and risen and empty. And it just sounds like madness. Maybe you feel pretty much the same. Maybe this is the point that you and the Christian faith part company. Perhaps there's lots that you like about the ethical teachings of Jesus. Perhaps you're quite taken uh, by the golden rule uh, and uh, the, the wise sayings. But the miraculous part, the, the supernatural part, the rising from the dead part, uh, that's the bit that you can't fathom. Because after all, who believes in that kind of stuff today? We live in a modern age. We live in a scientific age. We, we've got microwaves. Surely this stuff, this people rising from the dead stuff, it's the stuff of legends and fairy tales. You can't really believe it. Primitive superstitious cultures, well, well maybe they could believe, but not us. I wonder if you see the historical arrogance that's tucked in within that kind of way of thinking. Because it sort of says, look, because people in the first century didn't have mobile phones or Zoom calls, well, they, were, they were kind of a little bit stupid. 
gullible, easily taken in, able to believe things that clearly weren't true. But of course, that's not the case. Just because they didn't have our technology didn't mean that they were idiots. And here we see that they found believing in the idea of a man rising from the dead every bit as difficult as we do. So what persuaded them? Well, in a sense, here's the really interesting bit. Because finally, it wasn't actually the empty tomb. It wasn't even the appearance of the angels that led to the disciples being persuaded. No, that something more was needed. It's a principle we see again and again in the Bible. What God does needs to be explained by what God says. His works, if you like, need to be explained by his words, his explanation of the significance of those events. See, I left something out of the narrative earlier on, because the angels didn't just administer a rebuke, why are you looking for the living among the dead, or, or give an explanation, uh, he's not here, he's risen. They went further by reminding the women what Jesus had said to them. Do you see it there, middle of verse 6? Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Jesus had explained it, he'd predicted it, he'd anticipated this very moment, and he'd said that it must happen. It's so important this, and it's the point at which we so often get the Christian faith wrong. Because we're sure that Christianity says, look, Jesus came and, and lived a wonderful life, a loving life, a sacrificial life, a wise life. He set an example for us that he calls us to follow. And if we follow it well enough, then God will reward us and we'll be in his good books forever. And the thing is, that's not Christianity. It never has been. Uh, and it's not Christianity because of what is said here. The Son of Man must be delivered to the hands of sinners. The death of Jesus wasn't an unfortunate footnote. It was the very climax to everything that Jesus had come to do. Because however objectionable we might find it, the Bible tells us that you and I need Jesus to die for us. See, who would have guessed that this would be his plan of salvation? That this would be the way that he would do it? To come in flesh, to take our place, to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserve, and then to rise again so that he could give us life as a gift. That's why it was necessary. That's why it, the language is must. It must happen. Now, all of this is part of a much bigger story, more than we have time for. But next week, Jesus himself explains more of it in the, the remaining appearances, the resurrection appearances that Luke records for us in the rest of chapter 24. I'd love you to come back uh, next Sunday and hear of that. But before we finish this morning, would you just notice how scepticism doesn't have the final word? You remember that we left the disciples convinced that the women were, were just talking gibberish. But despite 
their cynicism at what they were being told. One disciple overcomes his scepticism and runs to the tomb. Did you see it there, verse 12? Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Have you ever asked yourself why it was Peter? Of all the, the, the disciples, why it was Peter that went? Well, I suppose you could say it was always Peter. He was always the, the first one to speak, the first one to act, uh, the impetuous one. So when Jesus was walking on the water, it was Peter who said, let me come out and join you. Or when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's Peter's hands in the air. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. But Peter was always, but Peter was also the one most likely to be the first to put his foot in it. And Peter was the first to deny Jesus as well. You remember, he'd vowed to do exactly the opposite. Even if everyone deserts you, Jesus, I'll stay with you. I've got your back. I'll never desert you. I'll be with you to the very end. Yet all it took was a servant girl asking a simple question. Surely you were with him. And Peter came crashing down. What do you mean? No, I wasn't. I don't even know the man. Three times, three denials, and then the crowing of a cock. And Peter is overwhelmed with guilt and shame at what he has done. Now I wonder, was that the reason that Peter ran to the tomb that morning? Because if there was even the, the slightest possibility that Jesus was alive again, then that meant it wasn't over. It, it meant that there was hope for Peter. Hope of restoration. Hope of redemption. Hope of forgiveness. Hope that his failings wouldn't have the last word on his life. It's the same today, isn't it? So often, those who are ready to overcome their scepticism and take a serious look at the Christian faith are those who are most aware of their need. People who are ready to acknowledge that there are things that they shouldn't have said that they have said. Things they've done that they wish they hadn't done. People who, for whom the possibility of redemption is too precious, too sweet, to walk past. Even if there's only the merest possibility that it could be true, they need to find out. And if we're humble enough to admit it, you and I, then we know that those people are us, that we are those who've said what we shouldn't have said and done what we shouldn't have done, those who are in need of such redemption. Well, in the midst of our period of enforced lockdown, I'd love to invite you to reflect further on these things. Uh, do join us again next Sunday morning as we look at the rest of this chapter. Do consider what this resurrection truth means for us.
But particularly if this is new to you, if maybe you're taking a look at the Christian faith in a serious way for the first time, well, I'd love to encourage you to to make this the year when you get these things clear. Even if this Easter you've still got lots and lots of questions about the things that we've been looking at and reading about and the things I've been talking about this morning. Even if this Easter you've got loads of questions, why not make it your ambition that by next Easter you'd have made your mind up? You'd have decided whether or not Jesus rose from the dead or not. And you'd have also decided whether or not He's somebody that is worth following or not. If you'd like help with doing that, then I've noticed that an organisation called Christianity Explored uh, is offering a free ebook on its website. Uh, the address is on the screen now, uh, or you'll find it on our website. It's a book that takes some of the commonest questions people have about the Christian faith and provides really excellent answers. Or if you'd like to engage directly with us, we're planning a welcome event. Uh, a strange kind of virtual welcome event uh, that we hope will be fun, uh, where we'll uh, say a little bit about uh, what Christchurch uh, uh, is all about, uh, how people can be involved, uh, answer questions, uh, and uh, just engage uh, with people in an evening online together. If that might be of interest to you, again, let us know. We'll give you details and you can decide uh, whether to pitch in with it or not. For now, let me thank you very much for joining us uh, on Easter Sunday. We're going to sing again uh, after I've prayed um, and uh, then wrap up. Uh, let me lead us in a prayer. Lord God, on this day when we remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we ask that you would give us the eyes of faith and to see the evidence that stands in history to point to what took place, to see also the significance of those events for our life and our death and for eternity, to see also our own need for such a salvation and to see that because Christ is risen, it means that there is a life to be had as his gift given to us. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.